This week, Paul and I interview Alexei Tirin, Senior Security Researcher for Acunetics. In the news, exploiting developer infrastructure is insanely easy. The maintainer of the event stream library speaks out on maintaining old projects. And AI mistakes a bus side ad for a famous CEO, then charges them with jaywalking. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Rapid7 powers the practice of SecOps. Using shared data, analytics, and automated workflows, SecOps unites IT, DevOps, and security teams to make security an outcome of innovation. Rapid7 combines technology, expertise, and advocacy to drive vulnerability management, application security, incident detection, and log management for more than 7,000 organizations worldwide. Power up your SecOps practice with a free trial at rapid7.com forward slash securityweekly. Welcome, everyone, to episode 42, our 43rd episode of Application Security Weekly. I am, of course, your host, Keith Hoodlett, and I'm excited to be joined once again by my illustrious co-host, Paul Asadorian. Episode 42. I'm excited. I expect you to have the answer for me. Oh, wait. Well, I, the episode I, number I, I is, the, is the answer, but sort of, it depends on how you count, I guess. Well, I think <laughs> that this episode will definitely knock your socks off, to say the least. Uh, <laughs> before we jump in, though, uh, one quick announcement. Uh, join us for a webcast with Chronicle entitled Intelligence-Powered Malware Hunting. This webcast will be held this week, December 5th at 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to securityweekly.com slash chronicle, that's C-H-R-O-N-I-C-L-E, to register now. Oh, and Keith, we, were, were you at yep. B-Sides Rhode Island? No, I was not. No, oh, but are, are okay. we doing... Isn't that isn't that uh, coming up soon, maybe? Besides Boston, do you remember the guy Brandon that presented with Allison around that time? Yes, I'm yeah. really familiar. Yeah, if you go back to that slide, that's the Brandon. <laughs> oh, what? No way. <laughs> that's way. I was... See, I, I thought I was the only one. He's. I'm like, nice to meet you, Brandon. I'm like a you know prep call. And he was like, oh, well, you've met before. I'm like, crap, I hate it when I do that. And that's the <laughs> Brandon that presented with Allison. So, yeah. And he's a total yeah, ninja. Like, I've seen the slides. Everyone should register. It's going to be awesome. It's kind of like when we uh, met up at, uh, what was it now? Louisville Airport. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Same sort of situation. Um, so with that, I just want to welcome our guest uh, guest today. Alexi Turin is a security researcher and pen tester with over eight years of experience in penetration testing and a particular focus on ERP and banking systems, including Windows networks. For the last four years, he's been focusing on web hacking and holds a position as senior security researcher at Acunetics. Also, Alexi maintains a Java deserialization cheat sheet and is the co-organizer of DEFCON Russia or DEFCON Group 7812. Alexi, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm glad to be with you here again. Yeah, it's going to be awesome, honestly. So, Alexi, you gave a talk at Zero Nights on uh, the interesting habits or behaviors of reverse proxies. And I thought that you might enjoy uh, talking a little bit about that. Of course, for other listeners uh, that want to go out and check out more about Acunetics as well, they can go to acunetics.com slash securityweekly. Uh, but in the meantime, Alexi, tell us a little bit about your, your talk at Zero Nights on reverse proxies. Like how and, and why did you decide to go after this uh, topic and, and what did you find? Yeah, um, actually, yeah, I can show you uh, some slides and I will, one moment. Yep. Do we see them? 
Yes. Yeah, you're good. It's it's up on the screen. Uh, that's cool. So. Um, basically, uh, like modern web applications, they uh, usually consist of you know many components, and one of them, one of usual components, is reverse proxy or load balancer or something like that. And reverse proxy, they are used for many purposes. For example, to route a certain request to certain uh, backend servers, or to restrict access to several areas on the uh, backend application or to perform some kind of actions with response to modify response from backend web application or to cache responses. So, and all these, usually all these uh, rules of reverse proxies, they are path based or location based. Uh, and the idea of uh, research it was quite simple. Uh, you know, to see how different uh, implementation of reverse proxy, how do they uh, parse requests, how do they uh, decodes, URL decodes it, and uh, how it normalizes the path to, how it performs path normalization, yeah. And uh, how it uh, sends requests to the backend server. Uh, in, it sends initial request or processes request. Um, yeah, so the idea was to check uh, a lot of uh, configuration of most common implementation of reverse proxies or load balancers or cache proxies uh, and to find out some kind of um, inconsistency between how reverse proxy um, process request and how uh, usual web servers process them. And if we find such inconsistency, we can bypass some kind of, uh, we can bypass some kind of restriction or which are allocated on reverse proxy, or we can uh, get more access on the backend web application. Uh, I have here, yeah. uh, is one simple example of kind of Interesting. It's kind of not well known, but known the behavior of Nginx, uh, how it works. Um, but it's known not for everyone, probably. And I think it's interesting. For example, you see here uh, we have almost completely the same uh, configuration of Nginx, uh, which proxy requests to some kind of backend server. The only difference there is this is trailing slash. You see here, it's there is string slash, and uh, here we don't have, and on, only this one trailing slash uh, completely change how Nginx resend request to the backend server. If you send such uh, request with such a weird pass uh, relative URI, then in case of configuration on the first configuration, uh, Nginx will send this request, normalize it and decode it as uh, to the backend server. But in case there is no training slash, it will resend uh, unprocessed uh, pass to the backend. Uh, it maybe looks not so interesting, but you know, if we look at some kind of example, like here, uh, for example, we here, have Nginx and uh, a web logic uh, on the back end. And on Nginx, we have um, restriction, which so nobody can access a console of the back end uh, of web logic. Uh, but using such a simple request, an attacker can access the web logic's console, uh, administrative console, because for Nginx, uh, when it sees such such request, uh, it uh, finds that there is a hash sign, and uh, for Nginx, everything that is located after hash sign is just a fragment, so it doesn't care about all this cont content. But actually, uh, Nginx sends to the backend uh, all these requests in this unnormalize it, unprocess it. But for web logic, uh, hash sign is a usual. Uh, symbol, so it uh, normalize request, and for web logic, we with such request we 
uh, as attackers we access uh, console on the backend. So basically, mm. you can do directory traversal just by uh, putting in a, a hashtag to say, okay, just go to the next layer up, and then uh, Nginx is just like, okay, uh, and we'll do it automatically for you. Uh, almost like that. For Nginx, uh, for Nginx, this is not for Nginx. Uh, everything which is located after. A hash sign is is fragment and it doesn't process it anyhow. So for engines, this request looks like uh, it engines uses these rules. So it sees slash and that's it. But for web logic, uh, for web logic, hash sign is a usual sign. So uh, web logic normalizes this path, and for web logic, it will be console. So Nginx doesn't uh, rewrite the URL. It just says it passed the filter and just passes it along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. It just gotcha. passes it like uh, from the request. Got it, and, got it. So what it ends up doing then is it, it passes it along to WebLogic. WebLogic basically takes care of all of the rest of the um, fragments and then says, okay, cool, you want the console, and then we'll pass it back yeah, and respond yeah, to okay, yeah. yeah, that you bypassed the, the web server. Yeah. Um, wow. So there is, is that's just a simple example. And another maybe key point of the research that uh, that we can misuse some kind of uh, rules, some kind of configuration of reverse proxy for, for for our purpose. I mean, from the point of view of attacker. For example, uh, here. Uh, we have Nginx and Tomcat as a backend server. And uh, Tomcat, by default, has uh, X-Frame option header, uh, which completely protected uh, against uh, click-jacking attack. But for example, in case uh, some part of Tomcat application must be allowed to be opened in some kind of iframe, and it is kind of safe part of uh, a web application, uh, someone creates a, such kind of rule on engines to delete this X-Frame option header. Uh, and it 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 is a kind of safe configuration, but, uh, but Tomcat uh, parses and normalizes uh, requests differently, so we can uh, Force Nginx to delete these headers, uh, and in the same uh, time, Tomcat will return us a different response, different uh, page. Yeah, so in this case, we can, as attackers, we can uh, perform a click jacking attack. You see here, uh, an attacker creates a page with iframe uh, and it points uh, to such a URL. Uh, and for Nginx, this URL uh, starts with iframe save, uh, so it uh, it de deletes Xframe option header, which uh, Tomcat sets. But for uh, Tomcat, uh, it is after normalization, after past normalization, this will be completely different URL because uh, Tomcat supports uh, past parameters. So. You see here we can, as attackers, we can uh, force, um, we can use some kind of rules of uh, engines of reverse proxy and apply them to different uh, parts of web application which on the back end. And, and so these are all URL encoding as well, or at least some of this is URL encoding. Um, you would think that the reverse proxy would be able to understand that and, and catch it in advance, but do you, Things like Tomcat and Nginx not have uh, that sort of capability to, you know, first decode the URL encoding and then determine the rule set, or is it just kind of passing along with the URL encoding first, and then it only looks for the the strictest rule set right out at the front? Um, actually, uh, I would say in this way, like uh, most common web servers and reverse proxy like engines they almost correctly uh, you know um, 
parse request, they can correctly rule the code usage, and they uh, perform pass normalization, and only after that they apply uh, rules that are in the configuration. Um, something like that. But there is difference how uh, web servers and reverse proxy are dependent on implementation, like here. Uh, the difference is only small. There is only small difference that Tomcat supports past tra uh, past parameters and Nginx doesn't support them. Uh, doesn't know about that they exist at all. Uh, and because of this difference, we can uh, perform some kind of attacks. Now, what sort of attacks would you you generally leverage once you have this sort of access? Would you be able to uh, do certain sort of remote code execution, or would you be trying to um, maybe access files or overwrite files potentially uh, based on the request? What sort of uh, general attacks would would you see being used in this case? Uh, actually, the the main idea here is that we. There are two types of attacks. Uh, the first one that we can uh, bypass some kind of restrictions on the uh, reverse proxy. Um, so if some part of web back, uh, backend web application is not accessible due to restriction on reverse proxy, we can uh, try to bypass this restriction because this inconsistency how uh, reverse proxy and back backend web application parse uh, the requests. Uh, the second type of attack is probably some kind of misrouting. For example, when uh, a reverse proxy um, wrote only to a certain endpoint of the web backend web application, not not to the root of the backend web application, but to some kind of uh, directory of the web application. But again, due to some kind of inconsistency, how different implementation parse the request, parses the path, we can access additional endpoints of the backend. And the last type, probably, of attacks, uh, which is covered in our research, is client-side. Uh, client-side uh, client attacks, and mostly, we are focusing on attacks like mm, web cache deception or cache, web cache poisoning. Like in our research, we are trying to uh, to show more cases where we uh, perform these attacks. Perform these attacks. Yeah. How can we misuse some kind of, some kind of configuration of uh, reverse proxy or cache proxy? Uh, and to, to to be able to exploit uh, such kind of such attacks as cache poisoning and web cache deception. So, if you had a, a cache poisoning attack, just for our, our listeners, what sort of things could you do once you poisoned that that cache for the web server? Could you pro probably redirect it to maybe your own site for things that it might otherwise be requesting for resources? Is that the sort of thing you would do with it? Mm. Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, with the idea uh, that, for example, the idea of web cache poisoning attack is that if we can somehow, for example, manipulate the response of uh, web application, and we can, I don't know, to, to and for example, the simplest example, we can inject something into the uh, response of uh, web application, um, but like say, like self XSS, for example. But we cannot exploit this. Uh, exploit this because this is safe XSS. We cannot uh, give it to uh, to anyone. But mm, uh, in some cases, uh, as attackers. If there is a cache proxy and it caches responses due to some kind of rules, uh, we can create a special request which mm, will be cached by reverse proxy. I mean, we create a request, uh, send it to the uh, to our victim, uh, 
And this request will be with our exercise payload. Web application returns to us uh, this exercise payload. And this is still the same self-access. But we can force a reverse proxy or cache, cache proxy to uh, cache this response. So uh, in this case, this self-access uh, now will be uh, not self-access, but a usual access. So we can uh, give this kind of special URL to uh, our victims, to users, and can exploit them and steal something, some, some of their information. Gotcha, gotcha. So it's a situation where you first need to uh, mess with the uh, proxy by caching kind of that particular page as being an XSS payload type uh, attack. And then from there, once you do like a phishing campaign, rather than having the browser protect them potentially from uh, a, a reflected cross-site scripting, um, in this case, they are going to get just regular cross-site scripting because the uh, the web proxy is pointing them to a, a page that uh, is already uh, has the exploit embedded in it. Is that maybe a good summary? Yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, but actually, all these uh, web cache poisoning attacks, they are, mm, they are kind of complex. Uh, I mean, depending on implementation of backend web application, uh, you can achieve some kind of XSS related, uh, similar to XSS attacks, uh, just by uh, misusing some kind of technology. So it's not always, you know, real XSS, but just some misconfiguration sometimes or something like that. So it has good potential. Gotcha, like gotcha. That. And in your research, what are some of the things that you, you find that you've been enjoying uh, playing with in terms of you know, different web servers or um, different types of frameworks or languages? Is there anything in particular that, uh, that you find enjoyable in, in kind of your exploration of the web and uh, vulnerabilities such as this? Mm, yeah, actually, so far, mm, we have covered several in configuration of Nginx, uh, Apache, uh, and uh, HA proxy, it is a load balancer, also Varnish cache proxy, and also I have tested uh, several other implementation, but uh, I'm still in the process of conversation with vendors uh, to be able to, to share this information. Mm. But uh, maybe the funny thing, Interesting thing for me that, for example, such things as um, varnish cache proxy or HA, this load balancer, uh, sometimes they they have their own uh, area of usage, how to use them. But sometimes people, for example, try to restrict access to some kind of yeah to restrict access with them, but. Um, both varnish cache proxy and HA proxy, both of them don't process uh, anyhow the request, the incoming request. So they don't know how to normalize the path. They don't know how to um, to even how to URL in the code uh, the request. So it's so easy to bypass such restrictions. I mean, from the point of view of attacker. Yeah, Alexi, it sounds like it's even easier to bypass than a WAF, which is, that's really, yeah, it, it, yeah. a really Completely. scary statement. <laughs> so it's, it was uh, interesting for me, to, you know, to see uh, how people, um, I, I mean, how people misuse them somehow. I mean, that uh, loan balancers, they must balance you know, incoming request between uh, backend servers, and you should not restrict access to certain endpoints on the backend just by configuring your uh, load balancer. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I mean, having done some Nginx configuration, you can definitely use it to uh, as like an access restriction. And as mm -hmm. you pointed out, you, you definitely don't want to do that. And if you've ever done any work with Nginx configs, right, it's 
it's very you can tell it's tuned for performance and not for any kind of security or restrictions and you're very limited as to the logic that you can do uh within nginx as well so yeah i think it, you very nicely pointed that out for our audience that you need some real security technologies if if you want to use it for access restrictions in many cases yeah but but actually nginx uh, and apache reverse proxies they they're quite good they have some issues some you know small things uh, but uh, in my case, they they can protect. Yeah, especially in, in if you configure it, it correctly, you can uh, do it in a good way. Mm. But such things nice. like HPA proxy or varnish or some other things, they uh, yeah, <laughs> it's really hard to configure them correctly to yeah. um, restrict access to somewhere or. Um, or something like that. Nice. And also, uh, for me, uh, personally, it was interesting to see how uh, different vendors, how they uh, understand some kind of uh, RFCs, how they, um, how do they choose uh, which rules to, which approach to use to part and how to parse requests. Because, yeah, because RFC is not so clear as usual, uh, and it was interesting, you know, to see how different people implement uh, one thing but differently. Awesome! That's actually really cool to hear about as well. And of course, I imagine um, at some point they'll be able to actually check out your slides, etc., for zero nights uh, once they go live from from the conference. Um, but with that. Are you ready for Application Security Weekly's five questions? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I was going to tell. I was hoping you were going to say yes. Um, so, what were the specs like on your first computer? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, actually, it was twenty years ago, almost exactly twenty years ago, uh, and uh, my first computer was uh, Pentium. The first Pentium, uh, two, 200 megahertz and with 32 megabytes of RAM. And that's all what I remember. <laughs> wow. Well, it's still, it's pretty good. Um, so <laughs> then I got to ask, though. Uh, so for 20 years ago, actually, that was pretty good indeed. It's about pretty similar to what I had. Um, but what programming language did you learn first? Uh, it was Perl. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Wow. Um, <laughs> gosh, how many Perl developers these days. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> and then, of course, got to ask, uh, Vim or Emacs? Um, Vim, but I, I don't care much, but OK, it will be Vim. <laughs> Gotcha, gotcha. So then if you're writing code and you're especially writing it in Vim with Perl, we got to ask you, spaces or tabs? Oh, yeah. Um, at first, it was tabs. But, you know, with a lot of pain, uh, Python forced me to use uh, spaces. Gotcha, gotcha. So now it's spaces. Uh, same. It's uh, spaces, uh, basically four spaces as a tab is the way I always do it. Um, yeah. Lastly, though, what sort of advice would you have for newcomers in the industry? Um, I think the most, personally, I think the most important thing is that you need to um, understand how, uh, how technologies works, how some kind of software works. Uh, and you need to understand why certain vulnerabilities or attacks exist at all. You know, to know um, reasons why vulnerability exists. And if you, uh, usually it, it takes much time, you know, to understand everything, but eventually you will be able to see some kind of uh, patterns, uh, how things works and how uh, why vulnerabilities exist, 
and uh, you will be able to find such vulnerabilities easier. And yeah, something like that. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, uh, with that, to check out the work that uh, Alexi is doing and all the good folks at Acunetics have put together, go to acunetics.com slash security weekly. Alexi, thank you very much for joining us on Application Security Weekly. With that, we are going to take a short break and then come back for the news. Hard-coded credentials can be trouble, but not as much trouble as a vulnerable DevOps environment. If you want protection without the hassle of security slowing you down, CyberArk, the number one provider in privilege access security, has the solution for you. With CyberArk Conjure, developers can easily secure secrets across any DevOps toolchain or platform, whether your application runs in the cloud or on-premises. Eliminate the headaches of managing secrets and try Conjure open source for free with no strings attached. Visit conjure.org forward slash ASW to get started today. Do you need a web application security solution that can improve your detection rate and enable easier remediation? Acunetics has a fully automated solution that can detect and report over 4,500 web vulnerabilities. Fast and scalable, it can scan thousands of pages without interruption, including HTML5, JavaScript, and single-page applications. Acunetics provides accuracy with the lowest fault positives by combining black box and white box testing. For more information, visit acunetics.com forward slash security Welcome back, everyone, to Application Security News for the week of December 2nd. Before we jump in, one quick announcement. If you are interested in quality over quantity and having meaningful conversations instead of just a badge scan, join us April 1st to the 3rd at Disney's Contemporary Resort for InfoSec World 2019, where you can connect and network with like-minded individuals in search of actionable information. Use the registration code OS19-SECWEEK for 15% off the main conference uh, main conference for World Pass, excuse me there. Um, with that, diving right into this, I thought it was pretty cool, Paul, that uh, some, some researchers at a couple of universities recently uh, took the AFL uh, fuzzer and, and built upon it a little bit to actually make faster fuzzing of uh, basically binaries and, and reverse engineering things to find more bugs. This was pretty neat. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Keith. I covered in Paul Security Weekly, I covered some new fuzzing technique thing. I'm wondering, I'm actually kind of hoping it is the same story because I really didn't do it justice on Paul Security Weekly. Yeah, so in, in this case, what it was is it, it was a group of researchers from several different universities uh, teamed up to go and look at the uh, American Fuzzy Lop or Fuzzy, where is it here? AFL Smart, and it was, just go reading through my notes. Yes, so it's a American fuzzy. My article yeah. was on smart gray box fuzzing. Yeah, this is the same thing. Okay, this it's the, the same thing. Yeah, lop. I see now, American fuzzy, fuzzy lop. Yep. Um, so I was like, the lop didn't sound right for some reason. I was like, wait a minute. No, and I was thinking of um, a researcher who goes by uh, fuzzy knop. Uh, it's so, different. And, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he used to work for Salesforce, that whole thing. Anyway, so this is American Fuzzy Lop Toolkit. Well, what they did is they took this, this toolkit and actually built upon it to be a little bit more intelligent. So these were researchers from, let's see here, where were the universities in this article? It had them from, all right, here we go. National University of Singapore, Monash University of Australia, and University Polytechnica of Bucharest. Uh, we're kind of the joint set of researchers, which, I mean, talk about being all over the map, right? Like that's a little, three different universities from pretty distinct regions of the world all working together uh, to come up with this nice white paper on the actual, you know, increased uh, and enhanced fuzzing. In fact, when they were running it in comparison to AFL from like a benchmark testing, they found uh, on average twice as many bugs as the original American Fuzzy Lop over the same 24 hour period of time and actually have something like 42 zero day vulnerabilities banking 17 CVEs listed on open source software libraries that they've run this against. I mean, talk about badass, right? Like you found 42 zero day vulnerabilities off of this new tool that you've built in open source repos. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, in the article that I covered, it said that they changed the fuzzing method to uh, do what they call innovative mutation operators, which work on a virtual file structure rather than at a bit level. So the file, what I, I kind of gleaned from that, and I didn't dig into it in any detail, is what they say in the article is it uh, their method helps me uh, ensure that the file types are valid, but are still morphing 
to complete the fuzzing operation, whereas the other types of fuzzing have a higher degree of the file that you're created to fuzz the application wouldn't be valid. That's where I yeah. it seemed to me like they got more success with their method. So the way that they actually talk about it is most fuzzing tools basically uh, flip bits inside of the application itself, slowly looking for input fields effectively, right? They're yep. just looking for opportunities to provide input to the application. And so because of it's the, you know, the flip one bit, flip a second bit, you know, flip one bit, flip another second bit, yep. that's a slow process. Whereas in this case, they actually kind of look at the application much more holistically, right? Mm -hmm. So rather than just fuzzing for bit flips and saying, okay, uh, do we have, you know, an input field here? No, flip the next bit and on and on and on. Um, what they would do is they would go ahead and derive structural representation of the seed file called, a, as you said, called a virtual structure. And then uh, using smart mutation operators to mi modify the actual virtual file structure itself. In addition to the file's bit sequence, they would actually be able to search for the generation of new input fields. So it sounds like they're doing a little bit of both, right? They're doing the original bit flipping sequencing and also this virtualized structure bit flipping. Now I imagine if you take that and you scale it up, right? Mm -hmm. So you now have the virtualization and you create 10 virtualizations instead of just one additional virtualization, you'd probably be able to go even faster, right? Yes, so it sounds it, like they're focusing on what, what is valid rather than just fuzzing everything, which kind of reminds me of parameter-based fuzzing. If you got a web app and it's got three different parameters and you set the first one to one option, then you get to the other two values to two different options and then all the permeations and they run through every single one and then your web app scan would take three years to complete because if there's 10 parameters, you got to go every possible combination uh, similar to you know, brute forcing. Um, but they're adding in some intelligence to that, which is, which is I think, how we over, also overcame the parameter-based fuzzing as well. Yeah, yeah. And in this case... Um, they're looking at it to explore those mutations as valid, right? So it's, okay, if we bit flip all these things and we only find um, valid mutations in the following places, uh, make sure we test those structurally. And I imagine also the virtualization aspect to this as well. You can run through virtualized files a lot faster than you could probably run through them uh, natively just mm. because of the way that you're actually flipping the bits in, in memory versus kind of that virtualization. Um, so that is probably a little bit about why they got all of this so successfully completed. I'd be interested to see if they're now able to scale it, right? So, um, for some sort of AWS computes, you know, cost, they could actually get three times as many, uh, you know, mutations in half the time and therefore increase the actual fuzzing abilities of this. Um, that would be oh, cool to so see as well. It's also interesting from the article building, uh, it says building the article that I linked to originally from last Thursday was, uh, they built upon the. AFL fuzzer originally developed by Michael Zaweski. Zaweski? Do you know what he developed yeah, originally? I, I can't even say his name right, but he's the original developer of P0F. Oh, really? No kidding. Oh, that's pretty awesome. His name looks familiar. Uh, um, I'm trying to go back and also look at this as well now. Anyhow, I, I thought this was a cool article. I this did too, yes. You build it, they will come. Uh, there is the research paper that is now publicly available for this as well. So if you're into you know the whole reverse engineering, bit flipping, fuzzing mm -hmm. scene, definitely go check it out because I think that this is going to be pretty awesome for you know researchers in general to go and check out themselves as well. Um, another cool story that I thought uh, was pretty interesting was how malware and rogue users can spy on some apps HTTPS crypto, which is kind of creepy considering that you know you shouldn't be able to spy on people's tls connections um but this one is also another paper that was recently published on uh, last friday called the nine lives of bleichenbacher's cat or new cache attacks on tls implementations uh with several co-authors i'm, I'm not going to give their names because they're probably way too hard for me to pronounce but again story number two under if you build it they will come it was also in the register where we're getting the source for this. Uh, what they ended up doing is they, they actually combined a couple of different techniques to make this possible. So they were looking at padding Oracle attacks. Uh, so basically fuzzing with dummy, dummy data to try and um, get ciphertext back out, uh, as well as, of course, looking at design flaws, such as what you see in Spectre and Meltdown, to be able to do cache-based side channels uh, to get basically ways through the defenses that normally prevent this sort of thing from taking place. And uh, so what they ended up doing is they're using uh, what's called uh, flush and reload. 
in which the attackers will flush and reload parts of the CPU cache while the victim is accessing the same area of cached memory. And they can basically determine whether or not there's any data in there because of uh, the speed at which they're actually able to uh, flush and reload that cache. If there's nothing in there, it should reload faster than if there's some actual data there to grab. Uh, they combine that with the uh, browser exploitation or browser exploit against SSL TLS, also known as the beast vulnerability, mm -hmm. to uh, basically combine the two and then start to steal encrypted data right out of the cache, um, which I thought was cool because, first of all, it works on a lot of things kind of scarily enough, and uh, it allows them to get access to data. Now, I should say some key points here. You either have to have local access to the box or you have to have malware running on the box for this to actually be possible. Uh, and it mostly works because of the fact that there's still RSA key um, encryption key ciphers that are allowed for downgrades in certain cases. And so because of that still in, being in existence as part of like a cipher suite that a lot of different services offer um, because of TLS 1.2, not TLS 1.3, you can actually make use of this attack in the wild if you drop some malware on a person's system. Um, which is really bad. Yeah, you know, I just I, I just found it interesting that, uh, and I'm sure a lot of other people already knew this, um, like Google hires, like I swear there's a team at Google that specifically goes out and finds like people who did research 20 plus years ago and were pioneers in their field and then hires them today. <laughs> so uh, who was the one like for- zero? I mean, I know that they're hiring people today too, but yeah, that's but, pretty much what they do is, is right. they go and hack all Daniel stuff. Bleichenbacher, who's mentioned in this article, is finding some of the 20 years ago, finding some flaws in the RSA uh, algorithm. He now yep. works for Google. Uh, last week's interview was, was with uh, Vitsa Venema and Dan Farmer, uh, and Vitsa works for Google. He's the one of the original you know, co-authors of Satan. Uh, Vitsa also... Uh, wrote TSP wrappers and Postfix um, for some history there. Uh, and if you dig it, right, Go programming language, Ken Thompson, right, one of the original Unix people, um, works for Google and worked on the Go programming language. So I, I thought that was, I don't know. I just put all those pieces together in my head. I'm late to the party. <laughs> so it's almost like they're playing Pokemon with really profound developers. Right. Right. <laughs> Got to catch them all. Yeah. So yeah. Um, with, th with this, um, it's funny because, yeah, the whole, I, I just love how it's the nine lives of Bleichenbacher's cat. Like yeah. how they basically took this old research and then just kept on kind of, you know, spinning it a little bit more yeah. um, to figure out how they could take everything that's old and make it new again. Yes. Um, and the combination of attacks too. So the things that they tested it on, by the way, where it worked, OpenSSL, Amazon S2N, Embed TLS, Apple Core TLS, Mozilla NSS, Wolf SSL, New TLS, and then it did not work for Bare SSL and Boring SSL. But the attack, basically, again, if you drop malware on the system, and for those that work in the enterprise, that happens. Like, if you drop that on a developer box somewhere, and suddenly you were pulling out, I don't know, key material for the production instances, Good luck, you know, have a nice life because suddenly you've just lost maybe SSH keys, maybe you've lost, um, I don't know, the commit keys to GitHub, for example. Uh, there are any number of things as, as, you know, encryption or key material for the connections you're making to important sites or important uh, processes that are just not great to, to have leak. And this is yet again another opportunity for data to leak out of your, your enterprise environment that are, in this case, encryption keys. Um, yeah, I don't know. This one was kind of scary to me, Paul. Mm. I think scary is also your next story too, which confirms many of my fears of deprecation. Oh yeah. <laughs> so this is actually tied also to story number three under bugs, breaches, and more, which is, um, uh, basically the process of exploiting developer infrastructure and how easy it actually is. So for those that are late to the game on the story, uh, there was a package called event stream or event dash stream. Uh, that actually was handed over to uh, a separate developer other than the original for continued maintenance. And that other developer uh, actually ended up putting Bitcoin stealing malware wrapped into the version, uh, I think it was like one of the version 3.x's 
Um, did a version bump, so anybody that was auto-updating would actually get that potential uh, malware, and then did like another release where they actually removed the code thereafter. So basically everyone in like the 3.x branch uh, had malware in it, and everyone that was in the 4.x uh, did not. But it had something like a million or two million downloads a week. And millions, so, yeah, millions of downloads a week, right? Yeah, and it was up there for, I think, three months. So think about this, you know, let's call it, I don't know, five million a month, right? Just, you know, basically maybe you have one million or two million somewhere in between every week, right? Five million a month for three months, there's 15 million potential downloads. Uh, that's a pretty hefty market considering that it's largely tied to developers that are picking this up. It's not, you know, just random mom and pops off the street. It's actual people writing code that now have this in their environment. And probably are a higher likelihood of having some sort of cryptocurrency on their system, maybe, uh, compared to the general, you know, broader populace. So yeah, like, this could have been a lot worse. This could have been backdoors, this could have been, uh, I don't know, writing malicious code into applications in some way that that exploited well, the general populace and not yeah. just the developers on their end box. It's interesting, the, the author of this article that we linked to in the show notes says, let's count all the things that went wrong. And talks about all the potential pitfalls of open source software, I, and many of them anyway. And I think in his list, really, it comes down to, I mean, it's not the only thing. I think the most important thing in these types of situations is number six in his list. The maintainer gave full control to an unknown entity just because they asked for it. I, I yep. think a lot of these attacks can be solved with education and just making sure that you're vetting who you give access to. And controlling right. controlling right. access, but you know the thing is that person that they gave access to may not have been the malicious person. Maybe that's someone that was victim of a password spraying attack or some kind of fish or something like that, right? So you're going after the other people in the project, not the actual project maintainer. Um, right. I'm sure there's multiple scenarios that that play out to lead to this type of situation. But I think as a maintainer of an open source project, you now have to be very cognizant of who you're giving access to and verify them to a certain degree. And of course, that's hard. But I think one thing that can help this problem in a big way. And you know, it's interesting, Paul, uh, since you, you mentioned that under story number three for bugs, breaches and more, the first bullet that's just below the original article, the original statement from the maintainer. Um, this was a really kind of an interesting read because the maintainer responded to um, you know, the same sort of comments, right? The same sort of like, why did you give it to this random person? Like, what were you thinking? All these other things. And, and the way that they equate the situation is, and if you actually go back and look at uh, Dominic's uh, kind of commit history over the last several years, back to like 2012 uh, or so, they've got like 4,000 plus commits every year. Uh, which is incredible, first of all. I mean, the mm -hmm. most I've ever had is maybe 2,700 commits in a year. Um, and then secondly, though, they point out that it, it wasn't fun for them anymore, so they stopped maintaining the package. Mm -hmm. And at this point, uh, they actually compare it to when they were a dishwasher at a restaurant, and, and very young, you know, earning an income, and they got promoted to chef, but it was only 50 cents more of a pay raise, but a lot more responsibility, yep. and it wasn't worth it. And that's what writing open source software is like a yeah. million times over. So it, it was interesting to read kind of the feedback because they said, you know, yeah, like this happened, but guess what? This isn't the last time that I'm going to walk away from mm -hmm. you know, something that I've built or all of these other things that I'm going to build. And it's not going to be the same case for, by the way, almost everything else out there either. So there's really only two solutions. And I think that these solutions are interesting in their own way. The first is pay the maintainers right. because by the way, you can only depend on the module if it's definitely maintained and they're not interested in maintaining it unless maybe they get paid for it. Um, the second one, which is also a valid point, is if you depend on it, maybe you should take part in maintaining it yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, and I can see the second one actually happen a lot more often where people will fork a project that is no longer maintained and, and they kind of become the new uh, main project over time. So that is something that, that tends to happen every now and then. I know that it happened with, uh, with Sublister for a little while. It's a, a kind of a bug bounty hunting tool that I tend to use. Um, and it's happened with other projects that I know of as well. And so it it's, I don't know, it's a catch-22, right? You're kind of damned if you do because you've made this project that now is really popular and you're damned if you don't because it's no longer maintained. It'll have you know vulnerabilities of different kinds. 
But maybe this is also an opportunity for something that we talked about, I think it was, I don't know, several months ago at this point, Paul, which was Google is paying people for patching or fixing security vulnerabilities in open source projects if the maintainer doesn't. And maybe that's the model we need to go with, right? Like get a really popular uh, repository of some kind or a project of some kind. And if you stop maintaining it, somebody else you know, pushes in or, or submits uh, bug fixes for security vulnerabilities, everybody wins. So I don't know. It was it was interesting to look at because on the one hand, yeah, like the ease at which you could basically exploit uh, the developers because they are pulling down all these packages to their local system, huge and really, really dangerous, especially considering I think it was last week we talked about how many uh, businesses are actually encouraging their people to use open source software. It was uh, the DigitalOcean survey that they did. Right. So. I mean, combine the two, and in, in, I think 2019 is going to be a really interesting year, Paul. We're Agreed. going to have a lot of news to talk about. Well, we're going to continue to talking about this because there's going to be new information coming to light, I think, all the time about, about this particular problem. Which yeah, I, is, sure. oh, it's sure. always been there, and I just think now it's it just exacerbated to the point where uh, it's just becoming very common, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost scary how common it's become. I think that, you know, over the course of this year, if we were to go back and reflect, and maybe we'll do this, say, on like, I don't know, the last episode of the year, we'll go back and do a reflection on, okay. No, what are people hate that. Over the year? Just, an F, <laughs> just an FYI, people hate that. <laughs> well, maybe not then. Maybe I will anyway. But it is one of those things that we have talked about a number of bugs just like this throughout the entire year, whether it was, you know, people losing access, people yeah. not having to factor authentication, you know, et cetera, right? right. Um, people typo squatting. And this is just going to be a bigger problem. Like as we go into 2019, it's just going to get even bigger. Yep. So speaking of, um, you know, fun open source projects that are out there under the learning and tool section, which we haven't been talking about as much lately. So I do apologize to our listeners for that. There are a couple of really cool tools that I did highlight uh, in this week's episode. So number one under learning and tools is XSS Fuzzer, which looks really awesome. It's under Kitplate uh, or kitplate.com. Uh, and it, it actually builds new XSS vectors for any browser. And then it tests them with get and post parameters, which by the way, you'd be interested to find how many XSSs actually come out of the fact that you're doing it as a get request, they patch the get request, and then yeah, you don't patch post, the post, it right. up. Yep. Um, it also does some bypassing for you as well. So XSS auditors, as well as web application firewalls, you know, the only protection that you need. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's one of those things that as a tool, I thought that this would be a great way for folks to go in and test their own web applications, uh, especially if, you know, you're worried about XSS, input validation, output encoding, and all that good stuff. So um, definitely check that one out. Paul, yeah, what did you check out uh, what is this kit? Hold on. What is this Kitploit? That sounds like a cool website. Yeah, it's Hacker Tools. So I've yeah. actually uh, linked a number of things in Kitplate. Um, so some of these are open source projects. Some of these are like released as mm. uh, as tools to the community that you know maybe they're released at a website as this one is at xssfuzzer.com. Uh, maybe they're released at a um, like a conference, and so it kind of keeps yeah. track of all of these. I like it. And I've had a number of different learnings and tools uh, things that show up on here as like, hey, that's really cool. Um, as is XSS Fuzzer. So definitely check that one out. Um, nice. But Paul, did you see the, the announcement for Firecracker uh, that um, that Amazon announced last week at reInvent? I saw it because you added it to the story. So I, I want to learn more about it. So this was interesting because they're, they're kind of going all in on serverless uh, with Firecracker. So basically what they say in the article, which is story number two under learning and tools, uh, is existing virtualization technologies weren't developed for optimized event-driven, or in this case, short-lived environments or workloads. Uh, so what they did is they took an open source uh, virtual machine monitor called Firecracker, which uses the Linux kernel-based virtual machine, or KVM, to build a lightweight, exceedingly secure, and minimalized uh, micro-virtual machine, or, or micro-VM. Uh, for specifically running serverless architecture. So now, if you wanted to go ahead and have uh, the, it's almost like the idea of a container, but even lighter than a container, right? It's it's so simple and basic uh, for, for use that it's 
intended to just run functions and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but written in Rust, which I thought was kind of interesting. They actually say uh, about a year ago, they decided to write it in Rust because it guarantees thread and memory safety to prevent buffer overflows hmm. or other types of memory errors, which, you know, forward thinking, that's definitely still an issue today, uh, which I thought was kind of cool. Although I can only imagine the pain of writing, you know, in Rust because it's it's like writing code in a straitjacket, for lack of a better term. Mm. Um, I don't know. Maybe people are into that sort of thing. Uh, but with that being said, um, because of the overhead for these things being less than five uh, megabytes uh, per micro VM on memory, they could run thousands of them uh, on their infrastructure. Or if you had, you know, on-premise infrastructure that you wanted to load this into and run your own kind of serverless architecture internally, you could for like next to nothing. Uh, so that was really cool as well. I don't know, Paul, did you read any more into this as well? They actually do talk about uh, Fargate as well as um, some of the other tooling that they have for uh, for the Amazon infrastructure that's available today. Uh, and they do talk about how this is like is intended to be run uh, beyond or faster than some of the other technologies. Uh, I, I, I didn't. Um, I just my question was you answered it was, could you run your own serverless uh, environment using this? And it sounds like the answer is yes. And then yeah. I saw the next website about the state of JavaScript and I was really distracted because it's got lots of cool clicky blinky things. we can definitely jump to that one last thing i did want to say about this is it runs on intel processors today support for amd and arm are coming in 2019 which i thought was also pretty cool that they're kind of going that route as well but yeah the the intention is okay you want to be able to run this uh you know locally as a developer go ahead you can it's really lightweight also you can do it inside of docker container orchestration framework such as kubernetes that you know will use firecracker as well and it's open source so you can contribute to it Hopefully they don't pass the keys over to anybody, <laughs> else, but you know, Bitcoin mining stuff right. in your firecracker, um, so that you could stick it in your firecracker and smoke it, as it were. <laughs> uh, but yes, the state of JavaScript. So this one was a really cool website in general. Um, so it, it's kind of like a general survey slash review of uh, the state of JavaScript, and of course, it's written like all in JavaScript. So as you mouse over things, it uh, it has kind of interesting reactions to your your mouse clicks and your mouse overs. It's crazy. Um, it is uh, like the coolest website of the year. One of the coolest ones. Like, yeah. The demographics one is probably one of my favorites. Like you go to the yes. demographics and then you just kind of mouse over the different areas and it tells you, you know, participation by country. It tells you salary information. It's so cool. Uh, years of experience, company size, gender breakdown. By the way, um, there, there's like a, well, a, a lot of, I'm not going to go there, a lot of, uh, men that responded to this, something like uh, 18,000 mm. uh, men versus about 930 women. Uh, non-binary was 142 and then other uh, was uh, 62. So there was a lot of men that responded to this. Not, not terribly surprising, I guess. But um, yeah, it, it kind of shows you the, the discrepancies of um, balance within the different uh, gender identities inside of the space. The other cool things, though, is connections, Paul. I don't know if you checked out this. Oh, yeah, I was playing but, around with this, yes. Yeah, so uh, Electron has something like 30, uh, 300, or excuse me, 31,198 yeah. different connections into different uh, other frameworks, such as Jasmine, uh, Mocha, Storybook. I didn't actually know what the graph meant. I was just like, that's really cool. And then now I understand. Yeah, no, no, you like mouse over these things. Yes. And it tells you where those connections are. That is the um, coolest graph ever. Oh my God, that's yeah. so awesome. ES6 is probably my favorite one if you actually highlight over them. ES6 has a lot of really cool connections and like the strength of the connection too. Yeah, always. Oh, so the thickness of the, wow, wow. Yeah, so cool. yeah. It's it, like th- this one blew my mind. Um, when you go to JavaScript flavors, it kind of has some, some nice, uh, nice charts in there as well. Um, and then you can actually go even deeper into like ES6 for example. And like you can mouse over everything and it gives you, it's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. This it's a really is cool probably my favorite website uh, all year. I would agree yeah. with you here. So there was, I saw a similar one when I was researching my hip hop talk that it was almost as cool as that one. And, and those were the two that stuck out of my mind as like the coolest sites that I've seen all year. Right. One of my favorite things, just the last thing that I'll opine on this, uh, this topic is if you actually go to other tools and it does cover the popularity of other languages as well. So if you're looking to become, uh, you know, multilingual, 
in the uh, development space, it tells you kind of, you know, an idea of where a lot of other people are. So probably where a lot of support actually is from uh, like documentation slash questions on it on Stack Overflow. By the way, Paul, one thing I do want to point out though is text editors, the most used text editor by like three times over VS Code. I was going to say, well, if you're doing JavaScript, it's VS Code. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. So I'm I've just loved this site in general. I hope they do this again for 2019 because I'm curious to see where the trends go. But also, I just want to see another website like this. It's just really cool. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I had a piece of tobacco stuck in my teeth, and they they never mind. It cut it. <laughs> Thanks. You know, I, I kind of figured that that would be the case. So. Um, with that, uh, one last thing I just wanted to point out, of course, is uh, our commit strip comic of the week. Uh, if it's not broken, I think for our listeners out there, especially those that uh, are on call, might appreciate this one. So, with that, thank you everyone for joining us for another week of Application Security Weekly. Remember to get commit and stay classy.